0: Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the senior editor of the e-journal Global Summetry. It's a pleasure uh, to invite you uh, into this interview. This is episode 32 in Shaking the Global Order, Hal Brands on China Domination and the Post-COVID-19 Global Order. Hal is a, a contemporary historian, who explores uh, the current global order. He has focused, among other things, on the rising tensions uh, and competition between China and the United States. With Jake Sullivan, a former Obama official and a non-resident senior fellow at Carnegie's Geoeconomics and Strategy program, they put together in May a foreign policy piece Uh, on uh, China's rise, uh, and in particular, several paths that they explored uh, to possible global domination by China. I explore, obviously, with Hal this particular article, uh, but more broadly examine American foreign policy, particularly in the age of Trump. Hal is an American historian, Currently, he is the Henry Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, SICE, and is also a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. So, let me welcome to the studio, Hal Brands. So it's a real pleasure to welcome you, Hal, to, to this uh, um, studio, which, as you know, is virtual. Uh, it's nice to see you. Thank you for having me. Okay. So let's start this way. Uh, uh, recently, Adam Tooze, the historian from uh, Columbia, in a review of several books on the liberal order, wrote, the re-evalu- reevaluation is now moving beyond foreign policy if this is a new cold war the historian hal brands you says the Americ the america needs to, that america needs to rally the home front it must become a better version of itself so i wanted to ask you two things about that one is this a new cold war and then i want you to kind of think about or discuss a little bit uh, the rally at the home front. What did you mean by the, by that? So two two ideas there that I wanted to explore with you.
1: Sure. So I'll just take those in sequence. Sure. Um, on the first count, this isn't the Cold War revisited. Uh, obviously, there are dr- dramatic differences between the U.S.-China competition, however you characterize it today, and the U.S.-Soviet relationship during the Cold War. The most obvious and the most commonly noted is the fact that levels of economic integration between the U.S. and China are orders of magnitude greater Mm -hmm. and orders of magnitude more complex than levels of economic integration between the United States and the Soviet Union were during the Cold War. The geography is different. The ideology uh, is a bit different. The the military competition is a bit different and and so on and so forth. And so, you know, we do a, a disservice to Uh, ourselves when we simply say that this is Cold War Part Two, because it is different. But the point that I try to make is a little bit more subtle, which is that the Cold War obviously had its unique qualities, but it was one of many historical iterations of long-term competition between great powers. There were timeless elements to the Cold War, just as there are timeless elements to the U.S.-China competition, the struggle for power and influence the way that geopolitical and ideological sources of friction tend to exacerbate each other, and that there were challenges that the United States faced during the Cold War that are actually not that different from challenges it faces today, at least in a broad sense. So one of the big challenges the United States faced during the old, early Cold War was figuring out what it wanted to achieve vis-a-vis the mm-hmm. Soviet Union and what its theory of victory for producing that was. The United States is confronting a similar challenge today. Throughout the Cold War, the United States had to orchestrate a very diverse and very fractious group of allies and partners to ensure that the balance of power remained favorable to the West. That's a similar challenge today, even though the particulars of it look very different. And so looking back on the Cold War and seeing how the United States handled some of those uh, more regular features of long-term competition can actually be helpful in thinking about US China competition today, so long as we don't fall into the trap of just assuming that everything is the same, because clearly it isn't. Okay. And on that question of how you handle the challenges of great power rivalry, that brings me to the second question you raised, mm-hmm. which is what does it mean to rally the home front? And the point that I was making in the piece that I think Adam was citing in, in his article was that the Cold War had lots of deleterious effects on the U.S. domestic scene. You know, the the idea of McCarthyism comes directly to to mind, but it also had a lot of constructive impacts because long-term competition is often a contest of systems as much as it is a contest of strategy. It's, It's a contest of whose model of politics, economics, and society is stronger and more attractive to other countries' in the world, and during the Cold War, the pressures of competition actually pushed the United States to do a number of things that made it stronger, whether that was investing in and building the world's preeminent higher education system, whether it was finally making progress and, and breaking down state-sponsored segregation and racial political exclusion uh, in the Southern part of the country, or doing a variety of other things. And so we should think about competitions and challenges as, as opportunities as well, Uh, And I think that could be true in the U.S.-China competition today.
0: Interesting. So let let me take you to a a recent piece that you've done. And you were with and you wrote it with uh, Jake Sullivan, uh, a former Obama uh, foreign policy official and uh, currently at at, um, Dartmouth, uh, where I believe he's a senior fellow there as well. So uh, the two of you wrote, this was in May, the conventional wisdom was China would seek an expanded regional role and a reduced U.S. role, but would defer uh, to the distant future any global ambitions. Now, however, the signs that China is gearing up to contest America's global leadership are unmistakable and they are ubiquitous. And you then further wrote with Jake, but it requires a degree of willful ignorance not to ask whether China is in fact seeking or will inevitably seek to establish itself as the world's leading power and how it might go about achieving it. So, I mean, the real question there is, um, what are the signs here that that this is exactly what China, not exactly, but this is what China's up to, that it's ultimately seeking domination, right? Because the piece you wrote uh is is for foreign policy is called two paths to global domination
1: yeah when uh whenever i hear the phrase global domination and, and bear in mind the titles are usually chosen by editors rather yes, than
0: not the writers the authors, I,
1: I think of pinky and the brain the cartoon <laughs> that i used to watch when i was growing up where you know it was always tomorrow the world basically <laughs> yeah i i think it's It's been hard to ignore the fact for about 15, 20 years that China is seeking a position of preeminence in East Asia and in its immediate neighborhood. And all you had to look at to to see that was the massive military buildup it's been conducting since the mid-1990s, which is meant to accomplish two things, to give it the power projection capabilities to bring its neighbors into line, and then also to keep the United States out of the region, if it's so desires. What's become clear more recently over the past decade, but increasingly over the past three, four, five years, is that Beijing's ambitions almost certainly go well beyond that. And so if you look at the way that the Chinese military is starting to project power, not just into the Western Pacific, but into the Indian Ocean, into the Arctic, uh, into areas that are far from China's shores, you get a sense of this. If you look at the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a multi-ocean, multi-continent effort to create a geo-economic space that is oriented toward Beijing and to win influence in places as far afield as sub-Saharan Africa and Europe and Latin America, uh, you can see this in action. If you look at the way that China is trying to uh, seize the high ground of the 21st century economy by dominating in key high-tech sectors you can see this and so there's just emerged if you look at to add another example if you look at the way that china is increasingly seeking to either capture existing international institutions or build its own you can see it and so the evidence has just become unmistakable that china is looking for something more than a sphere of influence in its own neighborhood uh, and so the question is, how are they going to get there? And, and what, what ultimately do they want to do with this position of global influence? But those are sort of second order questions. I think it's clear that the level of global ambition is there.
0: Well, let me, let me go a little bit further with this, because, you know, it's one thing to have a competition. And I think uh, all basically recognize it as competition. But the question is, you know, you're suggesting it's beyond that. It it it's seeking some uh, greater influence, uh, and and I guess the question is, you know, let's leave it for the moment at the Indo-Pacific level, and the, and the question then becomes: Look, the the, the greater kind of Xi Jinping um, effort uh, in the Indo-Pacific and to gain uh, influence and to be more aggressive seems to me to be driving most of the major actors in East Asia or the broader Indo-Pacific away from China. Uh, You know, the Koreas, the Japans, and in particular, the Indias are not exactly being, this is no bandwagoning effect, that's for sure. So, I mean, are you, you know, I guess I'm questioning this notion that you're raising of something beyond competition, let's call it global domination for the moment.
1: Well, first of all, it's important to bear in mind that ambition and reality can be two very different <laughs> things. So true, <laughs> uh, there are plenty of countries that have aspired to regional or global primacy that have not been able to achieve it. And I actually think that if the United States and the rest of you know, what we might have called the free world during the Cold War gets its right. act together, it'll be very, very hard for China to overmatch its rivals. Uh, That said, I I think there's an open question as to which way the swing states are going to break in this competition. And so you're you're absolutely right that China has displayed a unique talent for scaring and alienating (laughs) other countries over the past several years. Right. Uh, And they seem to be doubling down on that during covid during the pandemic. Uh, through wolf warrior diplomacy, through very aggressively badgering countries that express any interest in finding out how, how this disease escaped China in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it really has been a masterclass in diplomatic ham handedness. That said, questions and decisions about how countries will ultimately align and how they will position themselves vis a vis China have to do not simply with their preferences, but with their understanding of what is possible and, mm-hmm. and what is likely to succeed. And so, uh, yes, the Japanese would very much prefer not to live in an East Asia that's dominated by China. The question is whether they think that goal is achievable. And, and I think as long as the United States remains engaged and remains a constructive influence. Within East Asia and the Western Pacific, then most countries in the region will tr- their their first instincts will be to balance against China rather than to bandwagon it. But when they when and if they start to lose faith that the United States will help them preserve their geopolitical independence, they might start going in a different direction. And we're see- we're getting a preview of this right now, actually, in the Philippines. And so the Philippines. So longstanding U.S. treaty allies recently as about four and a half years ago, the U.S.-Philippines relationship seemed to be in great shape. The Philippines were basically becoming the keystone Mm -hmm. of an implicitly anti-China strategy in Southeast Asia. And two things happened. Rodrigo Duterte gets elected president of the Philippines, and he has a long history of anti-Americanism. He's also reported to be very corrupt, which makes him uh, susceptible to Chinese economic inroads. Mm-hmm. But Duterte has also said that he simply doesn't believe that the United States can help the Philippines defend its interests vis-a-vis Beijing in places like the South China Sea, for example. And so the argument he's making is that if we can't take on the Chinese by ourselves, and if we don't trust the Americans, then why shouldn't we simply cut the best deal we can with Beijing. Now, the, the pendulum may swing back in the Philippines after Duterte leaves office, but certainly what you're seeing there is an indication that if countries think that balancing won't succeed, they may try, to, they may give uh, bandwagoning a try.
0: Sure. I mean, I guess the question that immediately arises, how much is this, though, a, this, you know, kind of uh, moving back and forth? Also really a function of the current administration and, you know, it's anti-multilateralism. It's, you know, transactional focus, which is for Korea, Japan, you're not paying enough for the defense security community that we've created. So how, you know, how much does that enter into some of what you've seen or are seeing in, in East Asia and more broadly in the Indo-Pacific? I think it
1: does enter into the equation. And I think that there are conflicting signals about what the United States is up to in that part of the world right now. And so during the early months, uh, even the first year or so of the Trump administration, I think the the administration was viewed as a little bit of a breath of fresh air by some of our allies who had worried that the United States was not taking the China challenge seriously. And so Mm -hmm. the president got high marks in Japan, certainly, and and in Australia, I think, for speaking very candidly in his national security strategy and other uh, statements about the challenge that China poses, and by being willing to introduce some friction into that relationship, whether over trade or other issues. I I think, unfortunately, that effect has worn off over the past two or three years, and there's a great deal more consternation about the future Right. right now, for for two reasons. One is that if President Trump doesn't appear to like the People's Republic of China that much, he doesn't appear to like our allies that much. <laughs> and so, as you mentioned, the history of the last three years has been one of repeated disputes with the South Koreans over uh, burden sharing and host nation support payments. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a history of trade disputes with some of our closest democratic allies and a general aversion to the sort of close consultation and cooperation that has traditionally been the American hallmark in the region. And then the second piece of this is that uh, an administration as volatile as the Trump administration is inherently problematic from the perspective of American allies. Sure. Because what American allies ultimately want is for the U.S. to be strategically predictable. They want to be able to know that the United States will be there with them when the crisis comes. And so I I think the challenge that we face today is that there's some worry among our allies and partners in the region that the United States might uh, provoke a crisis with China, that it might send the relationship in a much more competitive direction or simply acknowledge the reality of competition is probably a better term for it but then not provide the level of backup for its allies and partners that they might be expecting. And that and that's, that's problematic because you if you're Tokyo or if you're South Korea uh, or if you're Australia, you don't want to have a volatile relationship with China at the same time that you have a volatile relationship with the United States. That's, that's dangerous. And I fear that's the position we could be getting into.
0: Okay, fair enough. And, uh, you know, in the end, in the article that you and Jake wrote, you admit that uh, China's ambitions are opaque. I mean, that's how you described it. So I'm uh, going to, again, carry back to American foreign policy for a moment. So I take it, you don't necessarily subscribe to this kind of existential US-China battle, which seems to have, you know, emerged very recently with a whole series of senior officials talking about it—that is, U.S. officials talking about it—kind of capped off uh, by uh, the Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo. This is a July speech, which he actually gave it um, uh, at the Nixon Library, in which he very much described this as an existential struggle. And he said, and if we don't act now, ultimately the CCP, the Communist Party of China, will erode our freedoms and subvert the rules-based order that our societies have worked so hard to build. If we bend the knee now, our children's children may be at the mercy of the Chinese Communist Party, whose actions are the primary challenge today in the free world. I assume that that's not necessarily a view that you uh, subscribe to, but a like to have a better better sense of where you're at with respect to the competition with China.
1: Yeah, I certainly wouldn't use that language. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I have a fairly stark view of what the U.S.-China competition is about and I believe very strongly that it would not be to America's advantage or to the advantage of democratic countries around the world to have to live in a geopolitical environment where Uh, the People's Republic of China, under its current leadership, is the most powerful actor in the world. I think that would be a world where coercion, uh, outright coercion, is much more prevalent Mm -hmm. than it is today. I think it would be a world where democracy and human rights are less widespread and less respected. It would be a world where authoritarianism is on the ascent. And if you just look at some of the more appalling aspects of Chinese behavior Today, and I'll just give two examples. One is that there is a, a truly horrifying campaign of repression mm-hmm. underway in Western China against the the Uyghur population, uh, which may entail the internment of millions of uh, individuals in modern day concentration camps, and the use of torture and all sorts of other. Awful methods, and then the second example I would give is that, that as I'm sure you know, there are at the moment two Canadian citizens who are being held hostage by the right.
0: Chinese right.
1: government, and so I, I think that that sort of conduct gives you a sense of how China will behave on the global stage as it becomes more powerful. And so, I, as I said, I wouldn't necessarily frame the challenge in exactly the same way as Secretary. Pompeo did but I do believe that it is quite a stark geopolitical challenge not just to the United States but to the larger world order that the United States and its allies have constructed over the past 75 years and that it's also a significant challenge uh, not only to the balance of power but to the balance of ideas to to what type of society and what type of governing model is ascendant and is prevalent in the world.
0: Okay Uh, now we talked a little bit about this you know Uh, kind of domination, which kind of is focused on the Indo-Pacific. But you do raise another uh, potential pathway for global domination in that article that you wrote with Jake Sullivan. And that was really a kind of Eurasia kind of focused uh, domination or path to domination. And uh, as you say, this would start with the Widening ambition of the Belt Road Initiative across Eurasia and Africa. Building and financing physical infrastructure puts China at the center of a web of trade and economic links spanning multiple continents. You know, that's, you know, that is a very different kind of, um, geopolitical strategy. But I wonder, you know, I was, uh, have been reading recently my own colleague, uh, who's now in Singapore, Parag Khanna. And of course, he focuses a fair bit on China and Eurasia. And his view is, you know, don't overdo the Chinese control and influence that, you know, there's a lot of pushback from these, you know, admittedly smaller countries, but the Kazakhstans and the Uzbekistan's and so forth. And that they're not a, you know, they're not just simply going to be swept into uh the uh, influence scope of of uh, China seeking to build this much greater Eurasia kind of uh, uh, influence. so I wondered whether you know uh, you thought there was any any logic to what uh, Parag has been saying. So I'm of two minds about this on On the one hand, I think it's
1: absolutely true. And there's a great book by my colleague at Johns Hopkins, Dan Markey, mm-hmm. on the Belt and Road Initiative, and right. the way that it is increasingly running up against local realities right. in uh, South Asia, Central Asia, and, and in other parts of the world as well. And so we we should keep that in mind. And there is some subset of Belt and Road projects that are basically going to turn into either financial or geopolitical traps for the Chinese. That's that's just inevitable sure. when you are trying to do business in parts of the world that are as corrupt and unstable as some of the countries in which China is now uh, operating. At the same time, there are also a subset of Belt and Road Projects that could have significant geopolitical effects, and so if China is successful in developing uh, the infrastructure that will allow it to project military power not just uh, off its uh, eastern coast, but also into the Indian Ocean and beyond, and and it uses facilities that is acquired or acquired access to as part of Belt and Road,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that, that would have significant geopolitical effects if China uses Belt and Road as a vehicle to uh, disseminate its uh, 5G technology, for instance, and thereby to achieve an advantage in that area, that would have geopolitical uh, impacts as well. And so I don't think we should assume that every uh, place where Chinese money or Chinese officials show up is about to fall into Beijing's lap. That would be problematic. But at the same time, we shouldn't simply wave away Belt and Road by saying, look, there's local resistance, because there are aspects of this that I think that actually could be quite significant. And then the final point I'll make is that sure. it, it is a mistake to say we shouldn't worry about a certain effort to achieve some geopolitical objective, because that effort is ultimately going to fail. And I'll give an example here, which will sound like an exaggeration, but it proves Uh, an important point. Mussolini might have been the world's worst statesman in the 1930s and the 1940s, and yet he caused a whole ton of damage by the time he was done. I'm not saying that Xi Jinping is Mussolini. What I'm saying is that you can fail to achieve a goal and still inflict a great deal of harm in the process.
0: Yeah, no, I was thinking it more <laughs> in the context of the current administration, but I <laughs> I won't pursue that line of argument uh further. Um I did want to turn before we ended our conversation to uh a new volume that you and a colleague Frank Gavin um uh it's an edited uh volume uh that uh, will appear I take it in uh, early next month. Um and uh, the title of the of the volume is COVID-19 and World Order, the Future of Conflict, Competition, and Cooperation. In fact, it's being released, if I'm not mistaken, September 8th. Um, Yeah, so I wanted to, and I'll give uh, to the audience a a wee bit of a blurb here. Uh, The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has killed hundreds of thousands of people and infected millions while also devastating the world economy. The consequences of the pandemic, however, Go much further, they threaten the fabric of national uh, and international politics around the world. As Henry Kissinger warned, the co- coronavirus epidemic will forever alter the world order. So um, I wanted to, uh, this is a highlight, uh, before the publication, what do you see as the main conclusions that you draw from uh, this volume, which includes a lot of good friends and colleagues Uh, uh, for both of us. uh, What do you see as the major conclusions that you could draw from it? Sure. So this,
1: this book was a lot of fun to put together. It came out of a conference that we held virtually through Johns Hopkins about two months ago. And what makes it interesting is that we brought together people from an array of fields and disciplines to try to think holistically about what COVID has done to the world and what it will do to the world by okay. the time the crisis is over and even after. And so we had leading experts from public health, uh, from history, from political science, from economics, from from you name it, um, academics, former policymakers, and so on and so forth, thinking through the impact of, of the crisis. And so uh, it's hard to do justice to, I think, the 22 essays that are involved in just a short amount of time. But I think the major theme that emerged the major themes that have emerged were were twofold one okay. was that the disruptions that covid has caused have been magnified by the fact that the international order was already under great strain and so covid hasn't so much created new weaknesses as exposed weaknesses that already exist already existed weaknesses in american leadership weaknesses in international institutions weaknesses in democratic political systems and weaknesses in state capacity in a number of leading countries. And and so the pre-existing conditions, so to speak, were already relatively serious, which is why the illness that we're now experiencing has had such traumatic effects. So that that's the bad news. COVID exploded in a world that was already disordered. The good news is that The pandemic is going to create as many opportunities as challenges when it Mm -hmm. comes to renewing a prosperous, peaceful, democratic world order. And so I think it's entirely possible that we could come out of COVID with a stronger balancing coalition that is working to limit Chinese influence, in part because COVID has illustrated to countries around the world all of the things they won't like about Chinese behavior as China becomes more powerful. I think it's entirely possible that the pandemic could prove more destabilizing to autocracies than to democracies. We're seeing an example of this in Belarus right, right now. Yep. Uh, and I think it's entirely possible that COVID will serve as a moment that, that pushes countries to reinvest in and perhaps reinvent some of the international institutions that exist to provide cooperation and catalyze collective action and dealing with challenges like this. None of this is guaranteed. It will take a degree of enlightened political leadership that I fear that the United States has not been showing over the past three years and and change. Mm -hmm. But if we can summon that leadership together with our friends and allies around the world, I think the the long-term prospects are actually quite good.
0: Uh, Do you think, I mean, specifically like kind of the global public health dimension, I mean, you know, you listen to people like Bill Gates, who for years kept saying that there had to be a greater uh, collective effort to prepare for a pandemic. Do you think that we may see um, institutionally a, 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 a more developed, collaborative process around global public health that clearly was not present prior to, to the COVID uh, pandemic?
1: So with the caveat that the public health is not my particular area, yeah, nor mine, <laughs> I think the answer is yes, with a caveat. And okay. a yes, is that you're already seeing uh, efforts um, on sort of multilateral and mini multilateral basis to strengthen cooperation in dealing with pandemics and their effects. And I think that COVID will have the effect Certainly, of putting in the front of everybody's mind how monumentally disruptive pandemics uh, can be and may help us deal with one of the inherent challenges of both of public health domestically and globally, which is that it's something you think a lot about during a crisis and don't think about at all (laughs) once the crisis is over. I, I hope, and I think we probably won't go back to that model, having seen just how traumatic one of these incidents can be. The, the challenge is that the uh, International Public Health Coalition has frayed a bit over the course of the, the right. crisis. And so the, right. the best example of this is the uh, extent to which the Chinese exerted influence in the WHO to avoid sort of blowing the whistle early on about how serious this was. And then the U.S. decision... Uh, Putatively, in response to that, to withdraw from the WHO uh, under the Trump administration. I I say putatively because I think that this was really more of a political move, right? Move on the merits. And I I would certainly imagine that if we have a Biden administration next year, that decision will be reversed. And I would note that even if it's not, uh, American civil society, uh, yes, billionaires count as civil society, have already stepped up to try to backfill the gap that uh, the U.S. funding cut to the WHO will create. And so a lot of it does come back to this issue of leadership. If the United States continues on the the sort of slash and burn path that it's on Mm -hmm. right now, I think it's very hard to see how you do get to a better, more collaborative approach to global public health over the long term. If the United States pulls out of that trend, I think the odds, again, are actually fairly good.
0: Yeah, two slight, uh, and you may want to comment on one evidence has come out uh, through the uh, the security community in the U.S. that, in fact, the um, local officials did not convey information up to the Beijing officials about the early consequences of the of the pandemic. So they weren't getting the information they needed, uh, and that that certainly um, you know helps us. To, it doesn't uh, end the criticism. Of, of the system, but it does suggest where the, where the locus, uh, was, uh, of that system. And uh, do you think on the U S side there, you know, if there's a new administration, there's, there's, you know, it, it seems as if, cause there's the so-called day one reversals, right. And one of the things that, uh, the Biden, uh, camp has said is on day one, we'll rejoin the W H O. So it does give some expression to this notion that that you know things will change uh in, in with uh with a new administration
1: so two two points quickly one um yes, the initial cover up in China was at the local level, but what mm-hmm. we now know is that the central government knew about the gravity of the pandemic for a number of days before. It even started addressing it internally uh, and then dissembled about the uh, nature and the gravity of the situation externally for a period beyond that. And so you have sort of a a two tiered uh, failure of uh, transparency when you're on the second point. Yes, I, I think if a Biden administration comes into power, a lot of the emphasis early on will be about. Rebuilding multilateral coalitions that have frayed under the Trump administration. I think, though, that if the Trump administration had simply said, We have some critiques of how the WHO has operated, right. and as a condition of our continued participation, we'd like to see those issues addressed, it actually would have gotten its way. And in fact, there are, there are processes underway right now to address some of the failings of the WHO that right. emerged during the crisis. Uh, It's a bit awkward because the United States has announced that it's leaving, but still wants to be a part of the process of addressing those challenges. And some of our European friends have politely told us that they don't take too kindly to that. But I think the Biden administration wouldn't simply come in and say, we're back. Everything's fine. They would say, we're willing to re-engage on these issues. Now, let's all deal together with some of the problems that the crisis has exposed
0: fair enough uh unfortunately the pattern of this of the trump administration seems to be kind of what you described and you can you can apply to the wto too we have problems with the wto and then everybody says okay yeah no understood and we may have some problems too and then, then when they talk about the, the need for reform uh this current administration seems unwilling to really say okay this is what we'd like it to appear like uh, in in terms of changes and and uh, and reform, you can
1: certainly see that with respect to the Joint
0: Comprehensive Plan of
1: Action, the Iran nuclear deal, right? which I think you know many commentators agreed had limitations, had had flaws, and as it turns out, at least our European allies were willing to address some of those yes. challenges. And it would have been hard negotiating, and I don't think we would have gotten full satisfaction, but it would have been. Uh, a better approach than simply leaving leaving the deal, which is what we ended up doing, and in many ways we're still grappling with the consequences of that today
0: absolutely well, I want to thank you hal for for taking the time uh to uh explore some of the issues around the u s china relationship and and as it turns out, some of the issues around the current administration as well. It's a real pleasure to have had the opportunity to sit down with you and talk about it and I'm sure. All are looking forward to the publication of the book. And uh, I must say I have my Kindle version already uh, ordered. (laughs) It will appear magically on September 8th. (laughs) You've been listening to the Global Symmetry Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.